Hey listeners, Morse code here. I'm coming to you from beneath the floor in the renovated section of Josh's bunker. You're probably asking how I got under an underground bunker, but we don't have time for trivial details. Josh has a new VIP in his lair, Jeffrey Goins. And I have drilled the smallest hole into the floor to put the smallest microphone beneath the room. All right, Jeff, thanks so much for meeting me in this uh, very nondescript location. Uh, Although I would say it uh, definitely has kind of a cool Cold War era vibe to it. (laughs) Little little James Bond villain, but for what we're going to talk about, I'm not sure. I don't know that the world would, uh, I think it might spin the world on a different axis if Mm. everybody had access to Mm. what we're going to talk about. Yeah, well, happy to be here. Thanks for keeping it low key. Mm-hmm. So, um, Jeff, in your work, um, like, how did you? Were, were you always a writer? Like in high school, were you just like a kind of a writing fool? Um, I heard Elizabeth Gilbert once say in a TED talk that writing is my home. Not in the sense that it's the place that I come from, but it's the place that I always return to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never really thought of myself as a writer, as a, as a kid, I mean, my son is eight and I remember telling him one time that he's, he, I said, Oh, you're so creative. Cause he like makes his own comic books and stuff. And he was like, what does that mean? I mean, he was probably, I don't know, five or six years old at the time. And, uh, he, he didn't understand that there was a term for, you know, somebody who was uh, especially creative, somebody who made things. He just kind of thought that like, as a kid, like, that's just what you do. And I think I had a similar sort of temperament where I was like, well, I just, this is just what I do. I just make things. Um, so I was always creative. Uh, I loved, um, I loved making things. I loved making art. I loved making music. Uh, and, and I loved writing. I expressed myself through poems. When I learned how to play the guitar, I um, wrote uh, songs, uh, started a band, but I was just always like, always felt like I, I had an urge to make things and I was trying, trying to find an outlet, uh, for it. So I, yeah, I did a lot of writing, but I didn't think of myself as a writer. Um, I just, I felt like I had something to say and I was looking for the right outlet to say it. Yeah. Were you the kid that was winning essay contests in school? Uh, I don't know if we had essay contests. I won the spelling. We did. Bee. I, I don't yeah. think I ever won. Okay. My skills I, were elsewhere. <laughs> I did win the spelling bee in sixth grade and I beat an eighth grader. And that was a big moment for me. Yeah. Do you remember, do you remember what the winning word was? Of course I do. It was acquiescence. Nice. I didn't even know what it meant. I just, I had memorized every single word of the hundreds of words on the list. Cause they give you a list of all the words that they could ask you. And I just memorized every single word and I beat an eighth grader and legend has it that he cried on the bus ride home that night. And I felt pretty good about that. Cause that was the only <laughs> time I ever made an eighth grader cry. I was a little, little chubby, short sixth grader. And yeah. I got, I got picked on. And so the fact that I made an eighth grader cry, I was fine with that. I suspect you and I each wore, did you wear Husky jeans or Husky oh, pants? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And I can't believe <laughs> I can just do that. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Josh. We need to go to the Husky section. That's uh, the worst. Yeah. Oh boy. They, invent, um, they invented a, a category for guys like us. Yeah. So out of, so out of school then, um, what, what did you, what did you pursue after high school? I went to college. Um, I, was the first person um, in my immediate family and one of the first people in my extended family to go to college. Uh, we didn't really have any money. So I chose the college. Actually, it was a private liberal arts school in Illinois called Illinois College, the first college founded in Illinois. I grew up west of the Chicago suburbs, just kind of out in the cornfields. Yeah. And uh, I picked the school that gave me a free ride. I uh, wow. went to college uh, on grants and scholarships. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So uh, I was just like, I just need to get to college. I didn't really have a plan beyond that. Just like get there. This is, this is what winners do. If you, um, you know, I was always a pretty good student 
And I, I didn't have huge ambitions, but I did want to go. I did want to leave. I, I grew up in a town of 1,100 people, Waterman, Illinois. And I was like, get me out of here. I got I to gotta go find my life, and it's not here. Yeah. So you were, you were studying then. What was your, what was your major? Uh, I had a double major in Spanish. Of course, and, of course and, you did. <laughs> uh, I had a double major in Spanish and religion. Uh, for no other reason than I wanted to go to Spain. Yeah. And my advisor told me if I went to Spain, I'd immediately get like 16 credit hours in a semester. So I'd like basically have a minor. Um, and, and so I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just round that off to a major. Um, and I was just really interested. Like I enjoyed my religion classes. So I just kept taking them. And that was, um, those were my majors. You're taking religion classes at a liberal arts college. And That's so- right. That's interesting. So I yep. wonder how did that impact your faith? Because I've seen it go two ways, right? I've seen, uh-huh, sure. you know, where someone is doing a very secular study of religion right. and, you know, then they kind of become more of kind of an, an agnostic outsider who's totally. fascinated and loves religion, right? but doesn't necessarily um, have to subscribe to the faith, the unprovable faith components of religion. Right. How did that impact you? So I grew up um, like kind of going to church the way a lot of Americans kind of go to church and consider themselves Christians. And then, and I just remember having this sense of, you know, what is this about kind of question, which has always been my question, you know, what, why are we here? What am I doing here? Uh, What is, what is the purpose of life? What's the meaning behind it? I was always kind of an angsty question filled kid. So I go to college. I don't really have any of these questions answered. And uh, high school wasn't great for me. Um, I wasn't super popular. I had, I had my own little group of friends, but I got picked on quite a bit, especially early on. And I was, it was just a lot of drama and a lot of BS. And, you know, it was a small town. We'd all grown up together. So it was like, Hmm you're this kind of person and you can't ever change because you were the way that we think you are. Right. Um, and you have these people reminding you that, that have known you since you were 10 years old, this is who you are. Um, so I go to college and it's kind of an opportunity to reinvent myself. So I, um, I do just that. I join, I join a fraternity. Uh, and then that same week I'm invited to play with this band uh, and I play music and have no idea that this is actually like a, a, a Christian worship band that plays chapel every every week for the entire uh, school, the entire college. And um, so that's my freshman year is um, getting drunk at frat parties and then going to like praise and, praise and worship concerts and playing in the band. And like not really, not really having a context, you know, I didn't really grow up evangelical. I didn't have a sense of this is right or wrong or whatever. It was just like, oh, this feels weird. I'm doing these two different paths. These people don't talk to each other. Uh, So, you know, long story short, uh, I ended up becoming um, a Christian in college. and, and, And I did declare my major maybe, I don't know, sophomore year, right when all that stuff was kind of coming together. But it was just because I was fascinated with it. And so, yeah, for me, my faith as a Christian developed alongside my understanding. And this, you're right in, in intuiting that this is a liberal arts education. So we're learning about the religions of the world. We're learning it from a very secular perspective. It's, there's no intention to get you to have any particular confession of faith. I took philosophy classes. I took classes on the New Testament, Old Testament. Uh, Zen Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, world religions, uh, you know, you name it. Um, yeah, and it was fascinating. I mean, I think what I, looking back now, um, the way I think of that time was, it was just me getting to play with um, ideas and and the different stories that we tell, myths that we tell, ideas that people have about how we got here. And, and I would say at the time, it did strengthen my faith. It made me a bit of an apologist, you know, somebody <laughs> who understood all of the different arguments and angles and, you know, and, and, I, and uh, I, I somewhat egotistically had like an answer for every, this is why I'm not a Buddhist. This is why I'm not this, I'm not that. And over time, my beliefs have expanded and opened. Um, but it was good. It was a positive experience. And you're right, I've, I've seen that go one of two ways as well. I do think that the uniqueness for me was 
I didn't grow up. Again, we went to, we would like go to church once in a while. Then we would stop going for several years. It was just this thing that we sort of did sometimes. So I didn't have this like strict conservative Christian uh, upbringing. Um, And so when I began to learn about that, when I began to read the Bible for myself while studying it in college, it was this interesting process of me going, wow, I I had no idea this was here. Did you, and and learning all the history behind it. um, It was fun. It was interesting. Yeah. And so also, I, I mean, I, you likely, Jeff, wouldn't consider yourself to be, or maybe you would, I don't know, like you don't necessarily brand yourself as an intellectual, but you're certainly, I, I think, you know, in our circles, people consider you to be quite thoughtful. And hmm. and, and, and and I would also say articulate oh. on that. And, and so I guess my question that, you know, uh, there's the apologist angle of faith, which I get. And, and there's also, though, um, I wonder, that, you know, you weren't, and I, I don't want to mean to use this word because it sounds bad, but an indoctrinated in a faith right. early on. Yeah, that's, that's true. Into this. Yes. And so, you know, as such, too, and kind of given your personality, I wonder, um, you know, how you look at intellectualism, because mm. I think in popular culture, um, you could also see maybe evidences of people that are just, gosh, I don't want to say dogmatic, but they're just, um, well, this is who I am. And those people are just weird. I mean, that's a, that's a horrible right, right, right. way of characterizing sure. that. But yeah, what yeah. I'm really interested in your opinion of kind of intellectualism in a faith uh, kind of role or, or a faith persona or identity, like how mm. those two um, gel nicely for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a, a thinking person and if something doesn't make sense up here, um, it's hard for me to grasp. Now I will say that past couple of years, um, I've really learned how to drop into my heart, feel my feelings. I had a therapist once tell me, he said, you think your feelings? Cause I would, I would very articulately describe for you what I was feeling without actually feeling it. You know, I'm feeling angry because you said this thing and it would all be up here and I wouldn't actually be experiencing the emotion in my body, which is where emotions are experienced. Um, so uh, all that to say, yeah, I mean, I have, um, I I will say also, I think it's a bit of a survivor, survival tool for me. I grew up uh, around a lot of trauma, um, a lot of chaos in our house, uh, and for me, it was like, I want to get it right. I don't want to feel the wrong thing at the wrong time, if you know what I mean. And so, um, when I did become a Christian, um, I was, I was like, I'm not going to do this just because somebody pressured me into it, you know, and I, I'm not going to succumb to some emotional altar call. Like I'm going to, I'm going to choose anything for the reason I would, I would use anything because it makes the most sense to me. So I was reading C.S. Lewis and, and I was meeting, I remember meeting with our college chaplain, like giving him my answers, you know, like I was drawn to Christianity without understanding why exactly. And uh, I started meeting with our college chaplain. He was an intellectual, he was a, you know, he's a college chaplain. He had multiple PhDs and, um, he, uh, said that, um, oh, well, I remember meeting with him and, and going, you know, I don't know about this. And, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of stories, you know? And, uh, and I, I remember saying like, what about all that genocide? He's like, what genocide? Where? Show me. And I'll be like, I don't know. He's like, we'll go find the story, come back to me and we'll talk about it. Cause I just had all these like generalizations and he was the first person who had ever challenged me from an intellectual position that faith was something other than just an, um, an emotional program, right? Like you're saying, like an indoctrinated thing. Like I was too smart for that and I wasn't gonna buy into it, you know? Um, so I, I think what was interesting, there were a couple of things that were interesting for me about faith. One was I thought all those people were weird. I remember, you know, my parents calling like the super religious people in town, Jesus freaks, and so that was like, I can't be that. And, and I remember thinking like, it wasn't that intelligent of a worldview. And so when I met 
one, a group of my peers in college that were really kind hearted, good people who lived as they said they believed. I had never seen that before. And that was so earnest to me that it was attractive. And then two, you know, experiencing that in an intellectual setting like college, like a university, um, and realizing there were really smart people like my college chaplain, like C.S. Lewis, who believed things that I previously thought were absurd. I mean, it gave me pause, right? C.S. Lewis and uh, his friend um, J.R. Tolkien had a conversation once where Tolkien was a devout Catholic and uh, Lewis was uh, an agnostic at this point, right? He was gradually moving out of uh, his, his kind of hard-hearted atheism. And uh, he said, you know, all those are just stories, right? Those are just myths. And uh, uh, Tolkien said to Lewis, he said, but some myths are true. And um, yeah, so I think my disposition now in regards to intellectualism, I don't, I mean, I can't make like a blanket statement about it. I know that for me, as I get older, uh, my heart softens. I realize that you can't think your way through every problem. You can't um, solve every human need with logic. And I, I've lived so much of my life up here that's, um, you know, my head that it's really hurt relationships of mine. And, and, and the more I live from the heart, I realize I don't have to turn off my brain, like the brain and the heart can talk to each other. But the more I live from my heart, better life feels. And I don't have answers for everything. Uh, not, not intellectual answers, but it's like, it feels good. It feels wrong is, is a legitimate answer for something. One, uh, final, <laughs> you know, I, 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 th this is great. Like, I'm, I'm so happy to be able to kind of talk about these type of issues again, sure. knowing that this is just a private conversation. Oh, sure. Right. Listening to us Never. Right uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, um, you are a fan of the Truman Show, and I know that oh, yeah. because uh -huh. you have you have a painting yep. uh, of Truman hitting the wall uh, yeah. and uh, ascending the staircase. And yes. I need that painting. Uh, so uh -huh. I've seen the Truman Show easily, easily more than twenty five times. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I've I've, uh, I, I've listened to the soundtrack probably a good 40, 50 times. Oh, that's uh, a good idea. I've never listened. Oh to the my gosh, it's it's one of my favorite. I I love the style. Yeah, uh, I love soundtracks. Dalhutz, I think is the uh, is the composer. He's fantastic. I love He's actually scores. in the movie too. And oh really? Yeah. There, if um one, I think you would really appreciate if you go on Reddit and you look at um movie details mm -hmm. uh and just search the Truman Show. It is mind-boggling how many easter eggs and little details uh, are in that movie and you can watch it over and over again that's cool and from my perspective and i, I suspect that you've probably picked up on this well i consider it to be one of the most spiritual movies i've oh, ever yeah. seen yeah Deeply same spiritual yeah and, mm -hmm. it, and it moves me uh every time i watch it because i think of you know, um, I, there was another movie. It wasn't particularly very good. It was an M. Night Shyamalan movie, um, you know, where someone, you know, any movie where someone discovers just how special mm. and unique that they are. And yeah. they're humbled by that at first. Mm -hmm. And they're like, wait a minute. You know, it's just me. Like, no, 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 no. You're far more special than you realize. Right. And so, you know, that, you know, when, when, when Truman realizes, oh my gosh, you know, this world that, you know, he'd suspected at long, you know, long uh, previous uh, that there was something going on here. Not, no spoiler, sorry, but it's an old movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. he, he hits yeah. the wall and he realizes yeah. in that moment and it's just, I ball when he, yeah. his hand touches that wall for the very first time yeah. and he realizes, oh my gosh, he understands the reality uh, that, you know, his whole life that he spent is a yeah. confirmation of, I knew it. I knew it. I always knew it. Yeah. And it was in my head, but yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd love your, I'd love your take on, on the Truman show. Uh, yeah. Um, I agree. I think it's a movie about waking up to who you really are. And, um, I, uh, I, I watched, I saw it years ago and I thought it was a fine movie. And then I, I rewatched it a few years ago when I was going through what, 
many of my friends and acquaintances call an existential crisis, you know, where it was just like, none of this stuff made sense anymore. And, um, meaning success, faith, love, like what is life about and, and why have all the things I've pursued in some way, let me down. Um, and, and, and for me, a lot of it came from, uh, uh, this, this journey towards success, you know, so quitting my job as a nonprofit marketer, working for a Christian mission organization, uh, becoming a full-time writer, starting a business, getting around other entrepreneurial types, uh, especially in the world of social media, where it's all about like leveling up and, you know, making more money and everybody's apparently talking about how much money they're making on the internet, posting income reports. And they're all being completely honest about that. Um, but I just like, it really triggered my shame, you know, I had so much shame. And so, <laughs> yeah, right. And so I would just like, um, I just kept doubling down, you know, and I, and I kept telling myself, um, when I get there, then I'll be okay. Right. And, mm. uh, my friend Tim Grawl said, you know, it's sort of like running a marathon. And as soon as you get within 20 yards of the finish line, you move the finish line. And so after a while, you just get really, really exhausted. And that's what I was doing. I was like, this year, I'm going to make a million dollars. Then I'm going to make $2 million. Then I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it was just never enough uh, because I was actually addicted to uh, my sense of shame. Uh, anyway, all that to say, I was really in the midst of like, is this all there is? Is this as good as it gets? And I watched the Truman Show around the time when I was actually letting go of my attachment to some of the stories that I had told myself about what, what mattered in life. And all these like crazy serendipitous experiences were, were happening. I, I stopped going to church for a while just because I just felt all of my anchors were just gone. You know, I just felt like I was floating out in, in the middle of the sea, you know? And I watched this movie and I was like, this is my life. I get it. And, and cause like two things were happening at the same time. I was feeling existentially untethered. I didn't know what life was about. I didn't know what my work should be about. I didn't know what mattered anymore. It just kind of felt meaningless. And, um, and, and, and so there were sort of two things happening. One was there were enough serendipities there were enough synchronicities in my life, things inexplicably happening that I felt, um, like I was on the right path, as confusing as it was. And then two, there were lots of people trying to convince me that everything was fine. And I remember talking to friends of mine, other entrepreneurs, other business owners being like, but like, what's the point of more money? And they're like, what do you mean? You know, like you just got to level up. This is the game. And I was like, but there's no point to it. You know, like when I made a million dollars, I wasn't that much I wasn't any happier than, you know, not. And so like, I just keep doubling the number forever. And I met people who had lived their lives this way and it just felt so empty to me. And then I also was meeting people in their sixties and seventies who were telling me, um, you know, the, the questions that you're wrestling with now in your thirties, uh, you know, we're starting to sort through, you know, post-retirement age. And um, so I, I watched a Truman show and I just felt so much comfort. Um, like you like you said, Josh, which is like, I feel like there's something more to life, but everybody around me seems to be conspiring saying, no, 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 this is it. It's fine. And I love, I love that picture of him touching the sky, right? What he thinks is the sky and it's wooden, right? I mean, that final scene is so beautiful because he, he, you know, sets sail and, and, and finally bravely decides to leave the world as he knows it. And, and thinks he's going off into, you know, the horizon and runs right into this wooden sky. This is the end of the world, right? It's a facsimile. It's not real. And um, yeah, I, I, I've, I've stayed on that path of going, well, what is real? And, and I would say as a creative person, you know, the artist actually has the ability to speak to that sense of longing, that feeling that we all have, which is there's more than just this, right? And the gift of an artist, a musician, a writer, a speaker, a poet, um, a photographer, a visual artist, painter, whatever, um, they have the ability to show us things that we didn't know that we knew. And, and that's the gift of art is it gives you eyes to see things that are there that you would have missed. 
And so I love that movie because it speaks to that longing that I've always had my whole life, which is there's got to be more, right? And even when I get the more, I'm like, there's got to be more than this, right? And um, I think there there is more. I had a conversation with a friend once where I said, you know, I feel like my life has been spent um, waiting, uh, treading water. Uh, with all my friends, with all the people I know, we're on the surface of the water describing what it's like on the ocean floor. And I said, I'm so tired of treading water. And a friend of mine, was his name's Ian. He's a priest and a psychotherapist. And um, he said, I said, I just want to see what's down there. This is how I felt at the time. I was like, I, I'm so tired of keeping up with what is expected of me. Um, in terms of performance, in terms of belief, in terms of what I'm told is real, right? And it just, I just, there's, there's gotta be more. And I just want to see the ocean floor. And um, he said, you know, it's down there, right? I said, I have no idea. He said, everything. And that was permission for me to let go, to stop trying and, and to let life happen in some ways to, to learn to let go and, and accept things as they are and, and experience the adventure uh, of a life well-lived, which by definition means you don't know what's going to happen. You don't have all the answers. Yeah. You know, I read something recently and, and, and it caused me to kind of stop and experience some gratitude. And, you know, you think of, and I think it was, you know, just pause for a moment. And think about where you are right now and what you're experiencing right now are the things that you asked for months, maybe years ago. Congratulations, you got them. So, you know, if nothing else, live in gratitude for what you have right now, because this is the order that you put in right. with the universe or with God. You got it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, the way I think of that is, is you're always the creator of your own life. And so I don't have a single problem that I didn't either create or allow into my life. And, yeah. and so there's a gratitude that comes with that. And then there's also a responsibility, which is like, oh, if I don't like this, oh, I created this. Like, I know that for me, for, for sure. I can't, I can't say, I can't speak for anybody else's life, but I know that for me, for sure, is the life that I have, good, bad, ugly, stressful, busy, boring, I can... Go, oh, yep, I see how I set that into motion six months or six years ago or whatever. And that is empowering because it means I can change it. Uh, it all it could also be a little bit depressing because I'm like, oh crap, you know, I did this. And um, but it's good. I mean, I really do, I really am beginning to understand that you can't change something until you accept it. So I go, this is the life that I have. I accept that. I'm actually grateful because it's it's kept me alive. It's kept, it, I am where I am because of it. And I have the freedom and the ability to change it if I want. Yeah. When you maybe in the past or when you today feel like is you know, like maybe there's some sadness or there's some worry, or there's a there's a negative emotion, there's a negative feeling. Right. Um what what do you do to say, you know, do, what do you do to kind of like snap out of it? Or maybe there's something you do in your daily basis that's kind of like, you know, taking a vitamin or something like that, that, that keeps that at bay. What, what are those things for you that you can either use to like, okay, I'm really not enjoying how I'm feeling right now. This right. situation is kind of a sucky situation. Yeah. Um, you know, so do you get out of your chair and bounce up and down and pump your arms like Tony Robbins? I mean, what's, sure. what's Jeff Goins' thing? Sure. Well, that's based on the idea. It's predicated on an assumption that um, one, there are negative emotions. Two, that if we're feeling something like sad, angry, upset, whatever, that we shouldn't be feeling that. And great. great yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes, and I get that, it. I appreciate because I really appreciate that. Someone sure. like, and I'll tell you where this, this perspective is coming from my kind of type seven Enneagram. Right. And so oh, that's right. I, yeah. this, is, this is my distorted filter. Oh and yeah. A negative emotion is right. like a parasite that right. like, Ooh, yeah. something's wrong here. You need oh. to fix this thing. Right. So yep. yeah, no, thank you for pointing that out. Cause I know that that's my distortion. Sure. Yeah. And I have lots of friends who are sevens. They're, they're real fun. And, um, and, and those who have really done their work realize that, um, 
that they uh, struggle to get into their heart and really feel because it, it's, it's scary. It can feel out of control. Um, so, uh, I have made peace or I'm making peace, uh, especially this year, you know, um, uh, or last year, gosh, <laughs> the year that never ends, uh, 2020, lots of quarantining, lots of isolation. Uh, it was lonely. It was a hard year for me. It was a year that I, I went through divorce. Um, I mean, it was, uh, it was a hard, heavy year for sure. Yeah. And, um, and it was the best year of my life, uh, because it taught me to feel, and Joseph Campbell says that every feeling fully felt is bliss. Now, bliss is not the same thing as what we would call happiness. Bliss is the feeling of being fully alive. And I had many deeply sad moments this past year that I realized in the moment, I remember going for a hike one day and like crying for two hours, walking around this lake in Nashville, feeling alive right? Going, oh, wow, this is what it's like to be filled with grief um, and to be present for it. And the suffering uh, only happens when you resist the feeling. So for example, um, say you're feeling sad, say you're feeling some sadness come up and that feels uncomfortable, unpleasant. And you have some sort of programming that says unpleasant emotions should not be felt. Let's push those away. Let's feel happy, right? Um, the sadness tends to just linger when you repress it, when you won't fully feel it. And uh, anger is that way, right? You can see this with kids. Kids are very honest with their emotions, right? Uh, see a kid get angry and don't give them an outlet to express it. Um, they just hold on to it. And I mean, if a human being does that for years, it comes out as rage once in a while, it'll just go nuts. Right. And so, uh, what I've experienced, uh, as a human is when I give myself the space to feel a, uh, a feeling fully, it goes pretty quickly. Uh, I remember recently doing some group therapy. I've done a lot of therapy, so I'm happy to talk about this. Um, but I was in a group therapy session and this thing kind of, this sadness came up at me. Somebody said this thing that rubbed me the wrong way and I was feeling kind of off and I knew it was silly, but I just felt off. And I, and I had to, I said, Hey, I need to share this. And I shared it. And somebody said, well, what would it, there was a facilitator and she was like, what would it be like for you to just feel that feeling? And I, I realized it was sadness. And I was like, I'm afraid to feel that feeling because if I start, it won't stop. And she goes, well, well why don't you just try? Mm -hmm. And so I let myself in that moment feel sad because I could feel it. I could actually feel the sensation wanting to come up. And I just didn't try. I just let it come out. And I cried for about two minutes, which is a long time to cry. Um, and then it was done and I felt great. And I've seen my kids do this. My kids are great teachers. I remember like, cause, cause we as human beings or as adults rather are programmed to think you're angry. Don't be angry. Right. You'll hurt somebody or you'll, you'll yell at somebody. They'll be bad. Right. And really what that means is anger is going to lead to disconnection, right? You're going to, you're going to shout at somebody. They're going to be, they're going to be mad at you and that's not going to go well. So just don't be angry or don't be sad because it feels better to be happy than it does to feel sad. But the truth is you're a human being and you've been given this technology in your body, in your brain, in the biochemistry uh, and the electricity of your body. Uh, you know, the neurology of it, how it's all wired together. You were given these abilities to feel all these things. So why wouldn't you to be fully alive? What was it? St. Irenaeus says the glory of God is man fully alive. Like to, to be all of it is what it means to be a human. So I make peace with the emotion. I experience it. And, and I've learned so much from my kids, you know, cause they'll, They'll be angry. They'll get in a fight with their sibling. I want to resolve it. I want to fix it. Don't you say that to your sister so that she doesn't get mad so that I don't have a hard time later today is really what I'm saying. Yeah. But, you know, my four-year-old will get mad at the eight-year-old and she'll, she'll, she'll go into the bedroom. I might go check on her. And she just kind of feels the feeling and then comes back. She's a completely different person. Mm -hmm. So that's a long way of saying uh, I feel the feeling. And then I find a way to express it. But then the other thing, Josh, I, I notice is um, I can cling to a feeling. Sadness is very familiar to me. So maybe I feel a little bit of sadness. And, and 
if you actually feel an emotion, I heard somewhere it takes about basically 90 seconds to feel, to fully feel an emotion. And then it goes, emotions leave. They don't stay with you. Now, some of us are used to feeling sad. We're used to feeling angry and your body can actually get addicted to those feelings. So what happens when the sadness is passing through your body, you might go, oh, I'm used to that. And I might try to think of something else to make me feel sad again. I've, I don't know if you ever caught yourself doing this. I've done this recently where I was like, wait, I was just sad, but now I'm not sad. What was I sad about again? And I have to like, think about it. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Now I'm sad again. So you have to understand that emotions come up, experience them, but then your thoughts can affect your emotions. And so this is something I'm, I'm becoming aware of. One, I'm going to let my body, my, myself feel whatever I'm feeling. And then two, I'm going to be very careful with my thinking mind to not cling to it. And, um, it's just awareness. It's a mindfulness, um, practice. I will say if I'm feeling really off, really unpleasant, you know, I, I mentioned trauma in, in, in my background. And so like, uh, it, it's possible for somebody to say something and I can like, I feel activated. Like I'm ready to fight or cry or scream or run away or, or something. And the, the best medicine for me is a walk. I love walking. I'll just go for a walk, move my body and, and feel better. And, and that's the best. I do the best thinking. I like thought walking is my best therapy. Um, it's, uh, it's my favorite practice. It's probably my, my most deeply held spiritual practice, which is just going for a walk and, yeah, and that's it. That's it. There's no other agenda. I'm very grateful for my doggy Levi. So Levi takes me <laughs> for three walks a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it really is just to, especially now in Florida, totally. you know, when it, when we get to, you know, summertime and summer is, uh, you know, March through November. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> um, right. You know, but, uh, you know, I just, just really, really appreciate the time, you know, and I've, what I've learned is that I am far more, it's far more therapeutic. So in other words, if I'm going to take, you know, eight minutes to walk around the block. Yeah. I could absolutely be rifling through Slack or emails totally. or messages or yeah. whatever in that eight yeah. minutes. Yeah. And, oh, I'm being productive. Yeah. <laughs> or, know. you know, I could, because, you know, when, when you do th this or, you know, when you have like, you know, two and a half, three hours of straight of Zoom calls. Right. Like, spiritually, because, um, particularly for those of us who, who, who really try to be very present, yeah. you know, teaching or being on stage is this way. Right. Yeah. And so when you're done, it's kind of like this, you know, you have to just really do that deep exhale yeah. um, because you've just been so hyper-focused for a period of time. But in that eight minutes, I, uh, I, I had a friend of mine, you know, really kind of talk about mindful walking. Right. And so, cause I don't enjoy meditation. I, I right. like, yeah. I, I know it's good for me. I, I, I do feel I better after doing it, but yeah. my monkey brain just, just totally. like, you know, fights me on that. She's like, yeah. so just walk and just yeah. stare at something, try to, you know, focus on the thing, focus on your breathing, focus on your steps and bam, we're going to call that good. And you know what? You're going to get all the benefits from that, that you would, uh, from, you know, going home or whatever. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Walking is my meditation. I've done some meditation. My preference is to move and that's just the way I'm, I'm wired. Um, I did some uh, work with uh, a woman this past year who, um, works on the nervous system, help, helps you kind of get in touch with your nervous system, reset your nervous system. And one thing she said to me was, um, uh, because I am so out of connection with my my body, uh, I'm a very heady person, right? So I'm always trying to like think my way through problems. Um, and I got like picked on, beat up as a kid. So there's like you know I don't like like that. that that's an unpleasant thing to feel stuff in in my body. Is 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 what the programming says. And so I'm just like I'm gonna stay out of there. I'm just gonna stay up here. Uh, but one thing she said was only uh, do exercise in in ways that are fun and feel good to you. And I was like, do you know what exercise is? It's like the antithesis of fun and feeling good. <laughs> but she was right. You know, and walking was just something that was very natural for me. And as a result, I've gotten much healthier. Mm. Uh, walking, occasionally doing some body weight exercises, going to the gym when I feel like it versus back in the day where I was like hurting myself. Like I was abusing my body to try to get it into shape. 
um, walking has just been this beautiful lesson to me, which is that you can pursue a goal gently. You can move slowly and deliberately uh, in the right direction without having to hurt or abuse or do damage to yourself. Uh, and, and you can enjoy it along the way. Walking, I, I'll walk for hours a day, many days. Mm, I love it. I, I it, I, I am absolutely in Zen or absolutely in my happy place, you know, particularly if I can walk where I have a lot of trees. <laughs> oh yeah. Same. Oh, I love gosh. trees. Oh, yeah. is that wonderful? Yeah. You know, uh, Henry David Thoreau, the last essay that he wrote was called walking. It's on audible. If you want to listen to it. Ah. Um, it's just an hour long. It's, it's funny. I'm, just, I'm listening to myself. I just did a Joe Rogan right there. Oh, uh, wow. yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Walking by Thoreau. He said, yeah. I, I used to feel bad, uh, you know, being addicted to productivity and like every moment you got to do right. something. Right. And I started going for these walks because I was going through this big personal crisis where like nothing made sense anymore. I'm like, why should I work? What's the point? You know, who cares? Um, like I was just so, I don't know, lost and, and indifferent about everything. So I just go for a walk every day as a way of like making sense of things. For a while, I'd listen to music and then listen to audiobooks. But for after a while, I just was like quiet. And I would just listen to the birds sing and listen to the sound of my, you know, feet. And I'd walk around the neighborhood or I'd walk at night or I'd go for office. I started going to parks, but I'd walk for like an, an hour plus every day. I part of me felt a little bit guilty. I mean, that's like a big long, it wasn't a lunch break, it was a walk break. I was like, you know, you could have done in an hour. And then I read this essay by Thoreau where he walked uh, an average of four to six hours a day. And he said, he said he, he felt pity for the people who were stuck inside because he'd walk past them every day, stuck inside, sitting at their desks, you know, eking out a, 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 an existence, um, you know, hunched over. I mean, this is 150 plus years ago. And he's talking about, um, you know, the benefits of movement, you know, while people are sitting down at desks all day long. And, and, you know, he, he had a, he wasn't just a, a writer and a guy who lived in the woods. I mean, he was a surveyor, he had a business, he was an entrepreneur, um, four to six hours a day. I was like, well, you know, if you can write Walden and walk four to six hours a day, I'm okay with my hour at the park. I'll be all right. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's pretty interesting, Jeff. I think of where this conversation has been and, you know, the questions that, that I want to talk about, I find <laughs> it really interesting because I think if we think of, and this isn't a podcast, by the way, um, right. but if I think about, you know, typical podcasts and, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of people want the tactical, but I, 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 but I think about, you know, people have been doing what they're doing for a little while. They've achieved right. some success. They generally don't talk about tactics as much. Right. I, I think mm -hmm. when you're newer, like you feel like tactics are the secret to success. Yes. When, and the longer I do this, you know, I feel so fed mm. in this conversation mm. talking about, I mean, I'm like, like, like when I say that, like, I feel like emotions welling up in me mm. to let you know how much I appreciate and how deep and meaningful what you've shared is to me. Mm. Um, but it's really interesting, you know, how I think at some point we transition from needing tactics and maybe it is because like, you know, life is pretty good. I got my, you know, got my bills paid or whatever. And, you know, business is, you know, great. I'm helping. I'm making an impact in the world. And so maybe that's the time where, you know, we get to reflect a little bit on, you know, the more philosophical things, or perhaps we realize that it's the philosophical underpinnings that set our sale in the right direction. And then the tactics, you know, the tactics, tactics aren't that mysterious to me, like tactics or tactics. I don't right. know. What, what's your opinion on, on, you know, kind of that, that mix between, I guess the kind of the content that you're after, like, yeah. oh, you know, I need to really work on my punctuation or my, you know, right. yeah. you know or mar you know, marketing, marketing tactics, very yeah. important. Yeah. I'm just not as interested in it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I hear a lot of marketing hustle talk yeah. and um, like I've, I've tried to spend some time on uh clubhouse Oh, right. And uh -huh. I appreciate that, but sure. yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel that for sure. Uh, me too. Um, I think the problem is life is actually not lived tactically. 
uh, life is lived, uh, as I experience it, narratively, which is to say it's a story. Uh, and it's a story in the sense that this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And all of my friends who are expert marketers and very successful entrepreneurs, um, they are experiencing their life, including their business success and failures. They're experiencing um, it as a story. And they are then, because I'm in this world of people do things, they learn things through experience, and then they teach them to other people so that they can replicate those experiences. That's not disingenuous. It's, it's you know, authentic and legitimate. However, I can speak for myself and my friends and say that um, we tend to experience some sort of success and then we talk about the tactics. We extrapolate the tactics um, in hindsight. We go, oh, I did this and I did this. And even if like, well, Josh told me about this thing that he did, or I read this book and I, and I applied it, I'm still kind of doing it and then realizing, oh, that's how that worked or it worked or it didn't work. Um, so the way I experience life is, is it's not tactically, you know, I, I mean, if I were uh, a soldier on the field of battle, maybe it would feel a bit more tactical, but even that like life never exactly plays out the way it's planned. A poet that I follow, a guy named David White, talks about the conversational nature of reality. And he basically says in a conversation, you have two, two people, right? And by definition, uh, a conversation doesn't go exactly the way that you thought it would go. Like, you know, you're talking about this interview, for example. Uh, it didn't go exactly the way either of us probably would have anticipated. Why? Because you're you and I'm me and I'm not you and you're not me. And we're both contributing something to the conversation, which affects the direction. So the conversational nature of reality or life is you're having a conversation with life. And a tactic says, this is the way it's supposed to go always. And life goes, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, this is why when you go to the bank and you ask for a business loan or something, they don't always give them to you because it doesn't always work out the way that you say it's going to work out, the way the plan says it's going to work out. Uh, I appreciate wisdom. I appreciate principles. I appreciate how we can learn from other people. This is why I read books. Um but I, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. You know, I don't subscribe to a lot of that fast content because as you mentioned, a lot of people who are talking about tactics is because they just learned them. And I'm interested in mastery. I'm interested in, in being really good at a few things for the rest of my life. Right. And, and I'm interested in fun, you know, like enjoying my life. And, and so I learn, like you, I learned so much more. And I've always been this way. I learned so much more from a story. And, and I guess I just, maybe it was skepticism or I don't know, you know, some sort of intuition. I just knew very early on that when somebody said, I did this, this, and this, and I succeeded, that that wasn't all there was to the story. And I don't experience my life as like A plus B equals C. I experience my life as like A plus B. And what about this? What about this? Here's E, F, G, and da, da, da. maybe we'll get back to C eventually. And who knows where we'll end up. And, and it's not to say that it's all chaos, but there is a little bit of chaos in everyday life for me. There's a little bit of the unexpected. And when I made peace with that, oh, it's not going to go the way that I think it will go, or even that I want it to go. It's going to go slightly different. And that's a good thing. That means I'm not going to be bored. That's actually the necessary ingredient of right. every great story. Yeah. If everything was predictable and seen, and you always got everything that you expected, right? And, uh, you know, how would, would we really appreciate that? Oh, of course not. I, I've done it, man. I've done the thing. I'm going to have a best-selling book and I'm going to work this many hours and I'm going to do this many. Th I, I did the goal setting thing, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to make a million dollars this year. I just check, 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 check. And I ended the year and I had no right to feel sad. I had no right to feel disappointed. And I did it. I just felt, hmm, this was it. That's all. That's all. I got everything that I wanted. And life is not about getting everything that you want. Life is about experiencing the thrill of being alive. 
I remember getting into Joseph Campbell uh, a couple of years ago and I um, was on a trip with a friend in San Francisco and we decided to ride our bikes to the Mere Woods from downtown San Francisco, cross the Golden Gate, Great, Golden Gate Bridge through Sausalito and, and up these, these crazy hills. I remember telling this, this woman in Sausalito, um, this is a little bay town, you know, uh, that we were going to ride out to the Mere Woods. And she goes, no, you can't do that. I go, what are you talking about? It's only like eight miles away. Um, she's like, you can't do that. She's from Texas. She goes, honey, you'll die. And I said, no, nah, I think it'll be okay. I think it'll be all right. I looked at the map. It's fine. And, and then when we started riding towards the Mere Woods, uh, I realized what she's talking about. You just go straight up a hill for like four and a half miles, like a 40 degree angle hill. And then we got to the top of this hill and then we went down the hill and the mirror woods are in a, in a valley and you go down these, these switchbacks. And I mean, we were going, we were going 30, 35 miles an hour on our bikes. We're going fast. We're flying and we're doing these little switchbacks. So you're like riding the brake the whole time. And if you, and I remember riding feeling like, okay, all right, this is, a, this is a, like, I could just fly off the road and I'm dead. I'm done. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's, several hundred feet down at least. So we're going down these switchbacks and I remember riding, you know, kind of, uh, riding the brake. And then eventually I just stopped squeezing and I pump it like every once in a while. And I felt this thrill come up in me. And it was like, I'm not completely safe. Cause I could be like sitting on my couch or holding the brake down, you know, and I'm not completely out of control. Cause I'm, I would have been creating off the Valley, but I am right on the edge of life and potential death. And I felt so alive and, and I thought, this is it. This is living is that, and, and, and Campbell said this, he goes, you know, you can't experience life until you're right on the edge of death. And that's different for everybody, you know, and I'm not necessarily, you know, saying that we, we try to do death defying things every day, but wherever your comfort zone is like, find the edge, like, like find the place where you start to really go, oh, I didn't know I could do that. The more I do that for me, the more alive I feel. And I realize how dead I've been, you know, practicing, uh, like pretending being alive. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what I'm interested in. Not a tactic. I want to, I want to, I want to live. Jeff, this has been such a great chat, man. Thank you so mm. much for this. I Therapeutic for me. And, and just, you know, I love, you know, when we, you know, you share wisdom back and forth, you know, you get new insights on you're reminded of new concepts and new ideas and new wisdom. You're affirmed in the things that, am I the only one who feels this way? And you hear it, you're like, no, 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 I'm not alone in this. So, right. um, hey, um, we're up again. I need to get you out of here. Yeah, <laughs> no worries. Thank you. We need to get on with our days. You totally. go on your one hour walk. I'll get to All mine right. a little bit later. <laughs> okay. All right. Have fun yeah, with your dog. A great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Welcome back, listeners. I hope you enjoyed that sweet audio I was able to snag. The Renault crew is back, and I think they're about to pour cement. I put a lot of sugar in it just to mess with the construction, but I got to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you want more ways to spy on Josh, go to upmyinfluence.com. This is Morse code, over and out.